I'm your host, Jennifer Cannellari. Our guest today will be entrepreneur and motivational speaker Tim Fisk. First up is the book When by Daniel Pink. I really enjoy Daniel Pink's writing. There's another book of his that I want to get to at some point. I had not heard of when and I stumbled across it. It's about how everything has timing. And I thought, well, his other book that I had read was so engaging. The style is so delightful. Let's see how this one is. And I have to say, it does not disappoint. I do have quibbles, but it doesn't disappoint. So there are parts in this where I really was blown away, like so seriously blown away. And other parts where I just went, meh. So it starts out with the guy that was piloting the Lusitania, that if his, that his timing was wrong versus him being either an idiot or some kind of criminal negligent or even a foreign spy because he, he took the ship out, the Lusitania out, and I think the basic story is that he didn't, he either didn't get it going in a good sort of time or he didn't take the kind of precautions that he should have done was just a huge scandal of World War One, a passenger ship that was targeted by the enemy and sunk by torpedo, kind of a nightmare. I guess that's about timing, but I actually feel like it doesn't hook in particularly well to the rest of the book, because the rest of the book is super practical, things for us to really, really know about timing and about ourselves. So of course hum humans, all animals have, heck, Plants have a circadian rhythm, that rhythm that lets us know what point in the day we are. If we're shut in a box with no windows, that will get pushed off this way or that way, but it will. some parts of it will still remain the same. Things that I really was finding so eye-opening is the idea of when you are at your best, doing your best work during the day, and a lot of what he's talking about is larks and owls. Larks are people that have their first big push of energy early in the day and then have a trough midway and then have a recuperative period afterwards. And night owls, as you can imagine, is actually quite the opposite. And when you know this about yourself, you can start to try to rearrange your days in order to take advantage and work in a way that aligns yourself with yourself instead of working against yourself. Interesting stuff about that. I have to say, he doesn't really cover the fact that I think people can in fact switch. I mean, I've had jobs that demanded real morning times and I felt like I got in a rhythm where I could really do that. And I've had other times where I didn't have to do that and was working in theaters and so I was working a lot at the end of the day and I eventually got into that kind of rhythm. So there's a lot of stuff that he says, this is how it is and I immediately thought of a million reasons why it isn't. Although they are using scientific studies, I do feel like those are only as good as they're designed. And this is a tendency. But my understanding of this is that it is similar to right-handedness and left-handedness that most people are lark-ish and their best of one kind of work is done at the beginning of the day and that tends to be mathematical or 
that kind of cognitive load is better done at the beginning of the day and creative work is better done at the other end of the day. And owls are flipped. Okay, I can get that. That's not a terrible thing to think about. But to me, it felt very much like the numbers are there, that it's kind of left-handedness and right-handedness. There's no judgment call about him. Well, Pink has a lot of stuff on his website that's fun. You can kind of walk through it, sort of ways to talk about this, reminders, and just little, I guess, kind of fun graphics about this. And on there, oh boy, is it loaded. Larks are introverted, conscientious, agreeable, persistent, emotionally stable, and owls are open, extrovert, neurotic, impulsive, and sensation-seeking. I, uh, I mean, I really feel like that's saying the same thing about right-handers and left-handers, and I don't think we would make those kinds of kind of personality distinctions, especially because the lark side seems awfully favorable and it makes the owls seem kind of terrible and and at that point I was like I don't think that reflects the book so I really don't know what it's doing on his website and he actually sends you to his website several times in the book to see which one you are to kind of answer a bunch of questions and and see which one you are hmm yeah I I found that to be a little bit judgment laden in a very very weird kind of way <laughs> but I do think that the idea of finding out when you surge and when you come back and we've known this for a while he's like he may have even really gotten popularized with this book or there may have been another couple that did but things like don't ever get sentenced to jail by a judge in that trough or even in the afternoon because most people are more larkish than they are night owl Scientists have definitely seen real patterns of things that involve judgment being done very poorly during the trough. Surgery. Get your surgery early in the morning. Oh my goodness. I had, it's, it's way more important than you think it is. So in order to counteract this, there's a couple things people can do. There's this idea that a doctor came up with with a vigilance break, which was before starting mindlessly on the next surgical procedure, the group takes a moment to regain focus because the stake, the task is such high stakes. Also, restorative breaks and making sure that there's some time off in order to go back to things. I actually really like the 50, 50 minutes of work with a 10-minute break. Making sure that you take lunch and that you really take lunch. And if at all possible, that you touch grass when you take lunch. That you get outside into something that will change your field of vision will restore you. And then make sure that you eat something and don't talk about work at lunch. Now, this book came out in 2018. I'd be really interested to see somebody study what was happening for lunches during the pandemic because were people going outside i mean certainly i was taking my dog for a walk so i was getting outside during that time it may be one of the things people really enjoy about the pandemic sort of work at home kind of thing and then this idea which i do think is very funny called a nappuccino 
if you're a coffee drinker where you drink coffee or caffeine and then go straight to a nap for 25 minutes. And the optimal time for this restorative time, this restorative break, is going to be seven hours after you wake up. I actually found that very interesting. Now, the author, Daniel Pink, is not a napper. I am. That was one of the great joys of parenting young children for me was this moment where it made sense that we all just ramped down for a half hour at the trough time after lunch. And I never timed it. I never realized there was a, an optimum time. That's kind of when it happened for toddlers. But, and that's probably because they're still very much in sync with their chronological clock in a way that the rest of us are not. But it really is nice, and it's nice to be able to put a number on it, that it's seven hours after you wake is when you're going to just be at the bottom of the shape, whether you are an early bird or a night owl. And for early birds, after that, you're going to have a restorative time and creative work is really good to do during then. And if you're a night owl, the flip. He has some things about get morning being the best time for exercise. I would like to see more of why that is. I don't know why it's easier for me to posit that morning is a better time cognitively for certain kinds of cognitive tasks, but physically, a time for physical tasks? Hmm. I, I don't know why I think that, especially because I've had jobs that were physically demanding. And as long as I had a nap, I could get right back to them at the other end, or as long as I had like a restful lunch. So it's more of like a recommendation and that's not bad. At least he does have these recommendations. That's kind of cool. And then he starts to talk about the patterns of when to start something. And I really loved the sort of logical progression of how these work and how you can see how these work. That there are times to begin something, starting right, starting again, and starting together. So you can start over. But some things that you start aren't getting started at the right time. And if for whatever reason it, it bails out, try it again. And if for some reason that bails out, try it again with someone else. I think that that is excellent advice for everyone. And since I've been in a deep dive about neurodivergence this year, there's something about being told that it's fine to start again, that we don't get a lot of that permission, I feel like in this culture. We're kind of locked into positions and we also, and this is, the culture does it, the sort of highly individualistic culture does it, the high cost of doing certain tasks does it, and then we are very, very vulnerable to the sunk cost fallacy, which is I already put so much effort in, I'm just going to brute force it through when things aren't going well, but they're not going well. And then a lot of times you have no control over whether you're allowed to start over again because what you were doing has simply finished. You were fired or something happened to the project, whatever it is. So beginnings work really, really well if you hook them up to a date that feels generative, I guess would be the best word. So that's why everybody goes to the gym on January 1st. 
January 1st is inherently no different than May 1st. May 1st is no different than May 16th. There's no magic to any of those dates. But the first of the year feels very right to start. Like it just feels like a new something. The first day of the month feels like a new something, which truly it is. It's it's kind of a, a reset. Also hilarious about this is that if we didn't have clocks or calendars, we wouldn't have such a strict first concept anyway. We might have a big thing of standing stones that sort of showed us when the solstice was or the equinox. We might have a sense of like, oh, the corn has come up, so this is the something day. But what we wouldn't have would be these very firm dates that we could lock things onto. They are an artificial construct, just like the hours of the day are an artificial construct. But in any case, your chances of following through are higher if you hook things to something meaningful. The first, a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, anything that feels like it's going to have real meaning is going to help you stay on track with something. That's extremely useful to know. And there's also the importance of endings. So make yourself have a deadline. This is one of the hardest cognitive things for me is that if I have deadlines that other people depend on, I meet them. If I have deadlines that I have set for myself, I don't. And I struggled with that for years. And when I would say things to people about like, how do I work around this? I was told that I just had to prioritize my own work or maybe it wasn't that important anyway. Or there was always some load of shame. There was always some load of laziness or, or I don't know, so, something wrong with me. Well, there kind of is something wrong with me in the sense that I'm not wired to do that. It's been very freeing to say, okay, all right, so clearly that is something that is very difficult for me to really follow through on. So I will get other people involved in the endings. So I will do something where somebody knows and can ask me at that point, and I will ask them to please check in with me so that I have reminders of the endings, which brings us, oddly enough, to middle points. So just like we slump in the day, that is more or less our shape always. <laughs> so whatever an upside down bell curve, I guess, might be the right to say it, right way to say it. A, a ditch curve, a sad, sad little dip. And that is that the middle of anything is going to have a complete mess moment. And what I found really interesting about Pink's book is that a lot of research has been done where teams do this. So there's a period of almost way too much ideation, way too much not really anticipating the ending, and then hits bottom and then there's a furious amount of activity in order to pull everybody back up in order to finish on time. I think one of the interesting things about that observation is that I have been a project manager several times for huge projects and that is so true. That is so true 
that after the after my first bout as a project manager, I walked through and post-mortemed everything and realized that as project manager, I had to lie. And in fact, this was how I ended up doing a lot of my grad work was being the schedule holder for the team and saying, if our project is due on the 25th, we are ne we're never going to speak of the 25th again. Our project is due on the 20th because we'll have all of our franticness earlier. We'll front load our franticness. And then when something awful happens, like somebody's computer melts down and they didn't back up or just anything that is some massive thing that happens, we'll be able to repair whatever it was and still hand things in on time. The other thing we did that I really enjoyed doing was we looked at all of our other courses when making our fake deadline and said, okay, well, so if we say that it's due the 20th, then our huge trough and then our huge burst of, of work is going to be more like the 15th to 17th. But there's another paper due or there's an exam due then. So let's shift this project one way or the other. So we did a lot of that kind of date stuff. And I have to say, it made working together a lot more pleasant. And everybody knows that working in groups is not always very pleasant in school groups. He talks a bit about, in fact, exactly that, groups synchronizing. And he has three levels of groups synchronizing. To the boss, to the tribe with a sense of belonging, and to the heart, to doing good. To the boss, this is a really interesting thing because he brings up orchestra directors. And I've played in several orchestras when I was a kid. And I've sung in loads of choirs as both a child and an adult. And that's very true. That is exactly the experience when you are in those groups is you have this person that is in front. And some are innate leaders and some are not. This is and the reason I'm sort of slowing down to talk about it is because I was a teenager for one of these orchestras and we had a we had a we had an orchestral director who couldn't handle teenagers and so we were not attentive and he would yell and we found that funny and he couldn't believe it it was all it was just a very interesting sort of example of terrible leadership. <laughs> so the boss has to know how to lead a group. The boss has to know what they want. They set the pace, they set the standard, they set the focus. But here's the thing that he didn't talk about, and I was a little bit curious about this. I have also played and sang in very tiny groups. In fact, in more about the groups that I have had work to do in. Like I don't have, I don't usually work in a group that is the size of an orchestra, 120 people. That's not the size of a group at work. That's not the size of a team. My teams have all been, you know, what do they say famously, don't ever have a bigger group than one pizza or two pizzas will feed. So, you know, seven people, 12 people max. I don't know. I'd be really interested to see more about the leader in that case. Sometimes those groups had a leader. But the thing I want to point out is in school, they almost never do because what, except for natural leadership, and that's fine, hmm, there is no percentage to being 
for having a leader in school groups, and I'll tell you why. Number one, the person that's acting as a leader is often self-aggrandizing. They're the person who's appointed themselves leaders, and they're not, in fact, able to lead. They're not able to cooperate with others. They've just jumped to the top and pretty much like in elementary school yelled, I'm king of the mountain, and they just want to boss people around. So that doesn't work. If you are in a group and you are taking on a leadership position in school, you have close to zero power. So you'll end up with one or two members that do absolutely nothing for this project. And most of the time, there is no effective way to handle that person that doesn't do the work. And I was in a team where one person actively worked against the other members of the team in some fairly shocking ways. And there was, except for reporting him, which felt like, I mean, we did it, but it felt like tattling. It wasn't effective. And the administration, since they weren't seeing this all the time, simply felt like as a team, we would work it out. But it affected everything we did. And we ended up being very sucked into one person's issues and drama, not what we were there to learn not the actual project. So I would love to, I'd love to have a better sense. Sure. A director is going to direct. Sure. A CEO is with any luck going to be a decent leader and CEO. So for 120 people, you know, division, fine. But what are we doing when we're talking smaller groups? So the other two pieces I think are a little bit more like it. So one is synchronizing to the tribe and a sense of belonging. That is still very tricky. And I know that businesses and organizations and, you know, people doing some kind of work together try to do this a lot. We go away for retreats. We get together and we do trust building exercises, something that a lot of people are very cynical about. But also, if they do work, they work. So some way of belonging to the tribe. Again, what happens when you have someone whose issues are so hard that they're not going to ever do that and who's got power to point out to them that they're not happy and no one else is getting their work done? Who's, who is really, who, who has, what, what paths are there? Uh, it's just kind of an interesting thing. He never goes into any of it, but it is true. Let's just pause it for a moment that he's talking about healthy groups that are getting something done so fine some kind of synchrony to the tribe and a sense of belonging. And the third one, and I actually think this is even more important and necessary. I kind of wish he had flipped these to the heart to do good. I would not say that. I would say meaning. Building meaning. Is the job we're all doing together meaningful? Is there a point to it? Is After we've done this focus group, is the organization just going to watch a slideshow and throw all of our recommendations in the trash? Or is it going to be part of how we affect real change? Are we being given enough autonomy to really find out some answers and paths to implement them or not? And I am, I shouldn't be surprised, but yet as I, I've been almost constantly surprised at how often workplaces and educational places put together groups, go through the motions of cohering, and then don't allow for meaning in the work that the group 
did as though just doing the work was meaningful. It's not. In fact, one really nice story was someone I knew who was in an alternative school as a child and a small group of her elementary school, she was a third grade or something, they were given the math problem of how much is it going to cost our school to plow the driveway? What, what is the range of prices? We don't need to plow the driveway unless there are three inches, or maybe two inches or more of snow on the driveway. So you need to go find out what is the largest amount of snow in the last five years? What's normally the range of snow? How many square feet is our driveway? What are some other impediments? And then they were given the power. So to find out exactly how much snow and then to call different businesses and find a range of prices and find out what made the most sense for this long, expansive driveway. And she, when she told me about this job she'd had, she was in her late 20s. So she had done this task about 20 years before and her eyes still lit up at being a little kid, being allowed to have meaningful, worthwhile work. Like they needed to find that out. They depended on these kids and then the kids hired the snow people and then they also built in a way to review the next year for the next class whether this had been the right choice. I was blown away because I was given busy work to do and never had meaningful work like this and certainly not in math classes as a child. And I can't, the only stories I can tell you of being in math class K through 12 is a couple of fairly agonizingly awful ones. I can't tell you of a time where I had work to do that was so meaningful and delightful that I would have a great story about it 20 years later. So I do think the meaning is actually the most important. I think the belonging is helpful and I'd like to know more about the ways in which to deal with lack of belonging. And I think the boss is kind of third unless we tease out what that means since usually you're not working in a group of like an orchestra. That's that's fairly rare because coordinating is 120 people. When you are coordinating as 120 people though, you probably do need somebody to just direct that. I don't, can't think of any orchestras that don't have someone in front corralling everybody. So Pink also tells you when to go first when to go last, to expect slumps and sparks and then work with them. I think one of the hardest things to do is to understand when you're in them, what is about to happen. And I'd love to have him talk a little bit more about the ability to identify, like a lot of this is just looking backwards and finding out what you did. He does talk about this concept that I've done several times and it's always really effective. I actually find it super fun, which is a pre-mortem, which is before you do a project, stand as if it is at two days after your deadline and start talking about where everything went wrong. In a way, that's what I was talking about with calendaring those projects, that if we were going to have our big push be at the same time as a serious exam, that's something you can do in pre-mortem. And he doesn't talk about, but I think it's really important in an organization. If you're going to do something year after year together, you owe it to yourself to build in time for a postmortem. 
and to learn from it and to see what can be done to what can be done a little differently next time. There's an absolutely fascinating piece. And the book does jump around a bit like I am. It's basically all about time, but it's also pretty much what captivated the author. But future tenses, in language where the future feels close, we live differently than in languages where the future tense feels far away. So English has a tense that feels far away, and it's incredibly hard for us to imagine ourselves in that future space with the needs that we will have at that future time, which is one of the reasons that it's so hard for people to save for the future many many other reasons and actually it's one of the one of the kind of bad sides of pink is he makes some declarations that you're like oh I mean that's only one reason the fact that a couple a very tiny number of people have sucked up a huge amount of the economy into their own personal bank accounts is actually the reason why it's so hard to save but when we are able to do any kind of savings it is very hard for us to think of how to do that partly because at least he posits, our language doesn't have that piece in it that lets us really truly imagine ourselves. And there have been some examples of this or some tests done on this, and he talks about them, which is you get your face aged through an AI Photoshop program, and then you actually you may do some kind of virtual reality or you may just look at a portrait and you really look at that person who is you in the future aged and people at least for a while tend to have a better sense of preparation for that time anyway very interesting and I really my quibbles were smaller than the things that I thought were great I do think you know he has sports metaphors and I got to tell you when I read through a thing in depth about basketball I only have the vaguest idea I I, I know how the game works but if we're going to talk about point spreads I've checked out, um, but it's okay. He's He balances those. There was some other authors that really doubled down on the sports and golf and football metaphors. This one, there are a couple, but it's not the only way he explains concepts. Thank you, Daniel Pink. And I do feel like if there's any way for us to figure out our own optimum times, it's pretty harmless to do that. So let's try it. And I do think we will have a better grasp of our, like we'll be working in concert, essentially we'll be the director of our own cognition, of our own energy, of our own ability to do things better at the right time. And when you do that, you, have, you lessen the cognitive lift that you have to do and you free yourself for other things that might be really fun to do that you never get around to because you're so busy doing all these this heavy lifting to get done in a given day what you wanted to get done. There are some people in the world for whom this is effortless. I don't think, or it appears effortless to us. I don't think that's always true. I don't think that every single thing that someone else does is gonna work for us, but I do think that we can learn some of this stuff about how we behave as humans, how we've always behaved as humans. This whole clock and calendar thing is real recent and be able to start to work with ourselves instead of so much against ourselves.
If you're just tuning in, this is Nine to Thrive, a show about work, creativity, and community. With me today is entrepreneur, business coach, and motivational speaker, Tim Fisk. Thanks for being on the show today, Tim. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited. Yeah. So why don't you start? The, the general topics are about work, community, and creativity, and how we get sort of a full life from balancing those things. So you can start with any of those and let me know your, like what it is you do. Okay. I mean, that's interesting. Uh, starting, getting a choice to start with which one I would, because normally we start with career, right? right? What do we do for work? Um, <laughs> I'm just going to start there because that's, that's, I think, the normal place where people start. I own a few different businesses in the Pioneer Valley. I own Hardest the Salon in Northampton. Mm. I also own Plum Boutique in Greenfield. And we just opened in June a new salon company in Greenfield called Parker on Main. Okay. Um, in addition to those businesses, I work as the manager of social digital for a consulting company called Summit Salon Business Center, which is an international consulting company that works with the salons and spas, barbershops, med spas. So I do a lot of traveling. I do a lot of training and coaching with small businesses and some motivational speaking as well. That third one, what do you provide? What, what kind of services do you provide for salons? I've never heard of that job, so it's very cool. Yeah, so um, this company actually is about 25 years old. We're the largest consulting company in that industry. Uh, we are the exclusive business partner to L'Oreal Professional Products Division, and we work with independent salons on all facets of their business, from sound financial practices, uh, building career paths for stylists and service providers, marketing and social digital, and also leadership development, which is where a lot of the motivational speaking comes into play. Oh, I love that. That's like the dearest part to my heart in like in the work world is people who come in and teach other people how to be a, a better boss, especially that idea, too, of like fostering the, you know, the employees to have an actual career path. Honestly, this is one of the most amazing companies that I've ever come across, and it's an honor to be a part of this company. Um, these people have changed, I think, my life as well. And uh, what we can do in this industry, uh, in the salon and spa industry, is profound, and people don't really realize it. A lot of parents might kick and scream as their kids say that they want to go to cosmetology school or become a hairstylist or an esthetician. And the truth of the matter is, is that many of those service providers are laughing all the way to the bank. And in our companies alone, we have people that earn six figures a year working behind the chair. Well, so you said it's changed your life. What are some of the ways that it's changed your life? I would say, you know, and, and this ties a little bit into this conversation. I think it ties a lot in, actually. There's this, one of my mentors had this saying once, and, and I don't mean to sound, um, I don't mean to sound self-serving by saying this, but they say, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and as an entrepreneur and anybody that runs a small business can understand this as an entrepreneur, sometimes you are that smartest person in the room. You are the apex of all decision-making of all the vision 
and everybody comes to you for everything from like, can we order more copy paper to, you know, what is the direction of the company and where are we going over the next five years? So you're really handling everything. And I think for me, meeting this group of people and then ultimately coming to work for this company was an opportunity to get in the room with some pretty heavy hitters and some very smart, gracious, kind, caring, generous people with whom I could bounce ideas off of. Uh, I could learn more about the industry, deep dive, learn about myself, develop my own leadership skills. I mean, this was really an opportunity for me to play at a whole different level. And I'm just so grateful to be a part of it. See, I love that because it occurs to me when you say that, it's something that I've thought of a lot in my life, which is there's a generative energy to starting businesses. And there's a, there's like, there's not just uh, things that are, are not going to be appropriate in the future. Like it's, there's a time component to everything. So that generative energy where you are this focal per- point because you brought this thing to be, that has an expiration date that's fuzzy, but there is one. But if you don't know there is one, that same energy, I think, can sometimes really drag a place down several several years later when it's no longer a brand new enterprise because of that smartest person in the room. Yeah, I mean, I hear from so many business owners. And actually, when I'm getting into a conversation about their leadership, it comes out almost every time. Like being the owner of a company or the leader of a company, being a leader in general could be a very lonely thing. Mm. Right. And I, I think a lot of people that experience fatigue with their businesses do so because of this sense of kind of being all alone in it. And it is draining and it is uh, alienating and isolating. So when we think about leadership development, we're not just talking about the development of that one leader who started the company, but how do we create leadership opportunities throughout the company, and um, in this case, even in a hair salon, where now the owner is no longer feeling like they're in it all alone. And it's not just about bringing on people to do things from a to-do list. It's about sharing vision and values on a deep level. And and in a lot of ways, when we start to do that in small businesses, it reignites that original passion that you're talking about in the owner as they share in that vision. That is, that is really profound. It's interesting too, like the structure of salons, it's not exactly unique, but it's, I remember being very surprised at how different it was from what I considered a workplace. Like I, you know, I, I, as, as a kid or whatever, a small business, oh, it's a salon. So that means there's a person who started it, they're a boss, everybody works for them and they clock out when they clock out, like they do for any other business. But it's really a different kind of like they you rent a chair and the people that work for you are actually kind of independent well that's one model of running a salon right so there are several different models and yeah and so that's one model where people are independent and they come and go as they please that is not the model that i run 
Oh. All of our folks are employees, so they're W-2 employees of our business, and they earn commission. Um, and our career path actually has a level system in it. So uh, in our company, when you're hired as a service provider, you will earn $15 an hour or your commission and tips, whichever's higher. And in most cases, it's always a lot higher, actually. But for those people that are just starting out in their career, that $15 an hour provides a great safety net for them. Mm. But then they are able to matriculate through these levels, and the levels are really based on the demand on their time. So what's happening in a salon, and regardless of the compensation model, is we do have a bunch of service providers who are building little mini businesses under one bigger business, right? Yeah, that's, yeah. Yeah, so our ability as leaders within this company, so me, who, by the way, I've never been behind the chair, I've never... And a stylist. No, this is just, I'm just a business person. And this is, you know, something that's been in my family. My grandmother raised my dad as a single mom, as a hairstylist. So it's something that's always been a part of our family. But for me, it's just a business venture. Yeah. Oh, I had no idea. How cool is that? Okay. Yeah. So, you know, they can matriculate through these levels based on the demand on their time. And what happens is through each level, their prices go up a little bit and their commission goes up a little bit. So they're able to earn what we call a promotion in our company. And it's very black and white. Um, There's no, you don't have to get me on a good day in order to get your promotion. It's like, it's very clear. You hit the numbers, the numbers don't lie, then boom, you're off to your next level. And it just really creates this beautiful path for people and they know where their future is. And because of that, we're able as a company to offer things like health insurance, dental insurance, Mm. disability, you know, paid vacations and things that other models of compensation just don't offer to stylists, especially when they're like renting a chair and they're kind of just working for themselves. That is really interesting. And your, even as you say that, I was thinking you know, there's this aspect that I don't really think about with stylists that is very much like, you know, waitressing in terms of emotional labor, like he actually much more than waitressing, because in the chair, people really open up. (laughs) (laughs) That's one way to put it. Yeah, they do open up. I have a story that I tell uh, a stylist told me this one, somebody on my team, and it just I mean, it makes me emotional sometimes when I think about it because they are explaining to me what a day in the life can be like and how, you know, one client comes in and they're just so elated because their son or their daughter just got into college and it's like the first person in the family to do that. And you're, you're sitting there and you're celebrating with that person and, and the very next person to come and sit in the chair could just be devastated that day because they found out that their partner was diagnosed with cancer, you know, and we, we give first haircuts and we give last haircuts. There are not very many main street businesses left where it is endemic to the business model itself that we grow up with people, right? Yeah. So we have lifelong relationships. When I was a little kid, uh, we would always go to the same gas station to fill up the car. My dad knew the owner and we, we knew their kids. I mean, it was just a different time of small main street businesses that have now been you know, gobbled up by larger chains and big businesses. Um, We still have those unique and and they become like these beloved main street businesses, the butcher shop or wherever, Mm -hmm. but it's not the norm anymore, except for in the salon industry. It's very much the norm where people are just building these kind of deep relationships, customers, service providers, business owners, and they last a lifetime. Wow. It's, mm, 
I just got to sit with that for a second because that is so true and feels so invisible. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I say, you know, people, if, if you ask a couple of things, if you ask any service provider why they became a stylist, right? Why did you do this? You're going to get some answer almost every single time, 99.9% of the time. You're going to get an answer that says something like, I just love the look on somebody's face. When we turn them around and see that they feel beautiful and confident and empowered. And that just fills me up. And we're talking about balancing community creativity and career. And it's funny that we're just having this conversation about this industry because I think in the last minute, we just talked about all three of those things. Yeah. Coalescing, right? Yeah. And, and, and it's, I'm not, this isn't a commercial for the salon industry. In fact, <laughs> this, is a, this is something new for me too. I didn't even get into this industry until I was in my 40s. But it really is a very fulfilling industry. And because of that, and if you ask any guest, like they'll say that it's their favorite day mm-hmm. because it's a day that it just gets to be about them where they can just take the world for a minute and just kind of give themselves something. Yeah, yeah, like deep self-care. I mean, yeah. It, it's really interesting because of the uh, sort of hookup. You mentioned it a little bit at the beginning, which is people who feel like this is not a profession to value. Right. When, in fact, when you cease to properly sort of groom yourself, look at yourself and face like pre- how you present yourself to the world, that's a huge red flag for depression and, and all sorts of mental struggles is is you've ceased to take care of yourself so this process of caring for yourself with the sort of help of this salon person I don't know it just seems much bigger than I really think about yeah I mean just think of it like every single person on some level will go into a salon a barber shop at some point in their life and from that entire spectrum of people we see all types you know, and, and going through all phases of life. I mean, we, we do have people that are struggling with things like cancer in our salon. We have people that are um, transitioning genders who come into our salon and, and we create a safe space for them. We have, um, you know, people that are just trying to find their self-esteem and, and find themselves. And, yeah. and you know, we and, and all kinds of things we don't even know about because it doesn't necessarily all come out there but the the experience if you do it right in a salon the experience can be transformational and instead of transactional and that's what we're always trying to go for well Uh, true and then you know I think of viral videos that will indicate that like uh occasionally I've seen ones where an autistic child is handled really brilliantly by (laughs) the person taking their haircut in a way Mm -hmm. that I think good grief that is like that is a massive skill set right there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, or the or the ones that sometimes people will go around to homeless shelters and get everyone yeah. presentable and people will, are able to get not are able to get jobs, but that's not even the that's not even the nah, point. The point is even. to be able to feel like a a human with dignity. It it yeah. it there's a piece of this dignity piece that honestly I'm right now like I'm kind of blown away by it. You know, so many people that come into our business that this is the only place where they're touched by another human being. And, you know, it's funny, I, before I was doing this industry, I was working for a social justice nonprofit in Springfield, and I did that for 10 years. 
And just thinking about my friends and my community and kind of moving into this industry, I think that the perception may have been or probably was from a lot of my friends and and family that like I was moving from something that was super mission-based and profound to something that was perhaps shallow or didn't have that kind of deeper meaning attached to it. And I'm here to tell you now that that is absolutely not the case. And I, and I can actually, I can actually say that, you know, part of being in this room with all of these people and working for this consulting company, I don't think any career is that if you put in your own meaning into what you're doing and you, you see yourself as living a life in service to other people. Well, yeah. And what's so interesting about it is the mix of it it does have to do with appearance and that's easy to write off as vanity. I know when I, you know, when I was growing up, the people that went into it were people that felt like they were good at it and valued for it. But then, of course, they were sort of dismissed and held in contempt by people that were like on their way to university as if as if this idea of being good at something and liking the way that you then appear is somehow not as legitimate as becoming a lawyer. (laughs) Yeah, I I know. And and then if you take that and then put the math side by side, you know, these, these young people are going through cosmetology school with a $10,000 investment. And they have the opportunity to make sixty, seventy thousand dollars in the first five years, yeah. and are their counterparts with four-year degrees and hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt, hoping for a forty, fifty thousand dollar a year salary job out of college. Yeah. And uh, you know, it, it's just you kind of can't compare the two. And you know, this is not just a conversation about trade versus you know academic careers. Like, right. I do want to kind of touch upon things like community and creativity yeah, yeah. outside of this, but like this is a, it's a legitimate industry. And I think that you know, it has, it's good sides and bad sides, like everything else does, but I've um, definitely, and maybe because it's uh, my background in social justice, uh, my background in theater, which I've, I've had the opportunity to have that kind of allows all of this to coalesce. And, and we have a value driven business model yeah. where um, everybody wins and everybody feels good the end of the day. Yeah. And on our way to that, I also just want to observe that cosmetology and salons and hair, you know, barbers and things, that is an industry that feels anyway, from the outside, open and accessible and welcoming to marginalized people in a Mm -hmm. way that nothing else seems to have that kind of open door. I may be wrong, but when I think about it, I think, Oh, the black barber shop and black women taking care of hair that a lot of times white women have no idea how to handle. Women taking care of, you know, the appearance of others, people with different, you know, with with a with a wide range of sexual preferences being accepted and able to go into this industry, which brings me to that community piece. Yes, and I think, you know, a lot of I mean, we could have a whole conversation about diversity in the industry. And, but I do think that is a place for 
you know, all of the freaks and geeks. And I do think that the industry as a whole is addressing diversity. It's it's joining this moment that we're in right now, looking in on itself and, and asking itself how it can do better, which is a beautiful thing. And I think, you know, when we talk about community, community is where wherever you find it, right? And I think if I think about my own community, there's there's several layers of community that I experience and I, that I have the, the privilege of experiencing, whether it's my local community as a local business owner and kind of growing up basically here in the Valley and all of the connections that I've made, both as a business owner, as a, a director of a social justice nonprofit, and, um, board member of, you know, a theater company, all of those cool things that we get to do, but then also the broader kind of community of the salon industry and my ability to touch upon that on a national level is also a, a piece of, of what I consider to be my fulfilling of a sense of community. Mm, mm. So yeah, let's bring that in. So what kind of community work do you do beyond the built-in, baked-in to your career part? You know, community is built and baked into me. And I think it's because I was a latchkey kid in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And I was raised basically by the YMCA in Springfield. Um, and I got the opportunity to do summer camps and after school programs and, you know, nature things after school, swim lessons, and ultimately um, was part of their team program which was called the Leaders Corps. And at the time, it was a pretty vibrant thing. And there were Leaders Corps all over the Northeast. And we would get together for rallies. And part of what we learned, and this is high school age, so 13 to 18, Mm -hmm. we had to do community service. So we had to volunteer places. We had to raise money for things. You know, So Mm -hmm. learning that kind of at a young age, that this was something that's vital and important, and having it attached to something that was so... Uh, magical for me. So like being able to grow up with this experience and all of the experiences that were given to me, it just kind of became part of my DNA. And uh, so it, and it's not just about volunteering or raising money for things. It's just about like going outside of yourself and outside of your very localized world of what we do when we get up every day and trying to do something that I don't, I hate to say the word makes a difference, mm. Do something that is just purely in service to something else. Yeah, meaningful. It builds meaningful. meaning. Yeah. Builds meaning is living in service to others. And I didn't even realize how important that was until I would say recently, until the last four years. It was just something that I did. And I, you know, I was early on in my 20s, I was on the Arts Council in Northampton. I was on um, the board of Pride Zone, which is a gay Mm. youth center back in the 90s um, and and 2000s. Um, I just had the opportunity to do a lot of that kind of work. But I didn't realize the significance of it and how it, it coalesced with kind of my own journey through life and how important it was to be doing this until probably like four years ago. And it was meeting some mentors and really starting to dissect like what was missing in my life. So the transition from nonprofit to what I'm doing now was very tumultuous. I wasn't 
necessarily something that I <laughs> masterminded at all. It was almost something that, that happened to me, right? Um, and so I had to transition. And I think I was lost for a couple of years and I was coming out of a relationship that was a seven-year relationship. I just was in this like major transformative place where like- It's so messy. Yeah, it was messy and like looking back, it was messy and cool and awesome and and, and wrenching. And mm. But when st- things started to kind of come together and I started to really understand that like the universe was talking to me and if I just listened, I could actually like find ways that all of these things that are happening to me are connected mm. and valuable and do something with them. The glue that kind of stuck all of that together was this idea of community and that you know, you need to lean in to serving other people because no matter what happens to you, you will, that, that feeling cannot be taken away. Mm. Right. That is something that once you do that, it's, it, it stays with you and it um, can prop you up even when other things maybe logistically around you aren't so perfect. Well, that is interesting. I, I just watched a Ted talk about burnout um, particularly in that sort of service-based burnout. And they said the the cure for burnout is not self-care that transfers the burden onto the individual. The, the cure for it is to reach out to that community that you've, ba- that you've you know, raised, that, that, uh, those relationships that you fostered and ask them for help and sort of care. That's the thing about the service like that, that I just thought that was a kind of interesting way to look at that flip side of giving everything to service and having nothing for yourself. And I think it's it's not even just asking, but it's also investing. Like mm. when we invest in our community and and it could be a phone call to a friend, Janet. Yeah. Like I'm not talking about like going to a soup kitchen and volunteering on Thanksgiving. I'm talking about anytime you lean in to community. Yeah, small C, big C. I'd like to thank Tim Fisk for joining me today. Tune in next week to hear the second half of our discussion and check out links and past episodes on our website, working9tothrive.com, and that's with the number nine.